But are we setting up not just your generation, other generations up with false expectations of what's possible? One of the indictments that I have of my own industry as a marketer and advertiser, right in the advertising space and the marketing space is that we've gaslit young people into believing that a perfect life is possible, that you can love your job and love your spouse and love your home and love your body and love everything. If you just buy the right products, if you do the right things, if you have the right philosophies, if you read the right books, it is possible to be transcendent, to be gleeful, to be joyful, to live with purpose in every moment. And I don't think that's true, right? I don't think that perfection is ever possible. This is Ziad Ahmed speaking. He's 24 years old and a very outspoken part of Generation Z. That's those aged 18 to 26 today. Ziad's an American Muslim Bangladeshi entrepreneur who, besides being a Yale graduate in political science, also has a marketing company that helps brands and manufacturers understand this important generation. Today, I ask him what happens now when Gen Z is getting older and has to enter important positions across our society, and how that's going to affect our society in years to come. Welcome. I'm Carla Bazashi, CEO of WGSN, the world's leading trend forecasting company, and you're listening to Lives of Tomorrow. Ziad, welcome. Let me start by asking you how you got to where you are today and whether there are any pivotal moments that were important in creating your career. You know, I think there's only been pivotal moments, right? I think each moment has been tremendously consequential and you never know, right, which hand you shake and which door you enter is going to be the one that makes the difference. But what I can say is how I ended up here is and I, and I posted about this recently, is, is really only a result of people choosing to be tremendously kind to me. And I have been so fortunate and so privileged in my journey to be the beneficiary of so much kindness. What I do day in and day out is I, I run Juve Consulting, which is what Refinery29 calls the largest and most popular Gen Z agency. And I work with clients to help them better understand how to connect with and empower diverse young people. And I get to do so with the most brilliant and dynamic and diverse team in the world. And I feel very fortunate to do so. And I started doing this when I was 16 years old, around 16 years old, having started a nonprofit some years prior built around social equality and social acceptance, which was in many ways a journalistic and awareness platform to talk about social justice and current events in ways that our schools were not, to create hopefully more inclusive communities and school environments for us as young people in ways that adults around us were perhaps not delivering in the ways that they needed to. And so started doing that when I was like 13, 14 and sort of through that. I found myself in rooms where I realized how often young people were being spoken about but not spoken to, and that didn't sit right with me. And so my junior year of high school, I founded Juve Consulting with this basic premise being that I believe the world looks better when diverse young people have a seat at the table. And I believe that at present, there is too much talking for, there is too much talking about, and not enough talking to and building with. And, and Juve really exists to fix that, to hopefully create a mechanism by which folks can actually talk to and build with the diverse young communities that they're trying to reach, that they're trying to connect with. And so that's what I spend a lot of my time doing and thinking about. And, and, and we exist to empower diverse young people. That's who we are and that's what we do. And so that means that we as a community and as a company are plugged into a lot of conversations insofar as thinking about what the present and future that our generation is contending with and, and trying to actively shape, hopefully, a better present and future for our cohort in all the ways that we can. Do you think most generations, when they're young, think that older generations don't listen to them. I'm going to, I don't like to think of myself as old, but I'm definitely older when it, if I'm comparing myself to you. And I definitely felt that. Where do you think the miss is that people get a bit older and then forget to 
talk to people who were younger than them? Or do you think that's not necessarily what's happening? People forgetting about it? Or do you believe that the generation you're in has got a lot more that they need to say, perhaps, than prior generations? I think that it's not necessarily unique to age. I think that people are seldom eager to be uncomfortable. I think that people are seldom eager to burst their bubbles. And I think that for so long, society has existed on certain binaries, on certain chronologies, and on certain hierarchies. And whenever anybody tries to disrupt hierarchies, they are met with resistance. Because at least at present, and historically for certain, there is more power and more privilege attached to each incremental age that you are, generally speaking. And oftentimes that power and privilege is hard fought and earned, right, through a sense of sacrifice and through a sense of going through things that perhaps are not optimal for self, for soul, for society. And I think that oftentimes there is this feeling that older generations have that because I went through it, you must. If I had to go through it, you do too. And I don't think that's unique to age. I think that's unique to any community, to any evolution. The sense that those who did it before are almost angry that someone could have it better, could have it different or uncomfortable by it. And I think that youth uniquely, to your point, not just Gen Z, has this capacity to look at the world and say, just because things have been this way does not mean they have to stay this way. Because as you get older, you become more desensitized to like, this is just the way that things are, right? You sort of have to become jaded by the world around you to not be perpetually, like, viscerally angry. And I think that young people look at the world and say, different is possible. And I think that was all, what has always been beautiful about youth is our capacity to reimagine. I think what is unique about this moment, what is unique about Gen Z, is our reimagination gets to be main, mainstream almost instantaneously. Should we focus in on this? Because I do think this is really interesting because every generation that's gone through, whether they're, you know, millennials, digital natives, or every generation is described in a different way. And a lot of that today is through the lens of technology. Give me your perspective, therefore, on why Gen Z is unique because of the technology that's around them. And then I guess my follow-up question to that would be, if that didn't exist, would Gen Z be just the same as previous generations that have come along? Well, no, to the latter question, in the sense that I think there are two things that I think set apart in a generation. One is the technologies and innovations that occurred during your lifetime, and two is the geopolitical moments that occurred at your life during your lifetime. And so absent of the technological innovation that happened during Gen Z's lifetime, there are certain fundamental geopolitical events that happened at specific seminal ages, right? What COVID means to a 19-year-old is different than to a 9-year-old is different than to a 90-year-old, right? And how that changes your psyche, depending on how old you are, I think is quite significant. And so I think Gen Z has absolutely been shaped by the geopolitical circumstances of our reality, as well as how that intersects with innovation and technology, is also our cognizance of those geopolitical events, right? Because, you know, one could easily say, but every generation has had tumultuous geopolitical events happen during their lifetime. However, the inundated nature right, of social media today and how Gen Z is interacting with the tremendous injustice that exists in the world is much more omnipresent. And I think as a result of technology, what I talk about often is it, it takes one tweet to bring fi down Fire Festival. It doesn't necessarily take Kent State for someone to be heard, right? With the click of a button, Gen Z can trigger shift in public discourse, in popular culture. What a tremendous 
privilege, but also opportunity that is, right? And platform that is. And I think Gen Z uniquely is coming to the table with more power at our age than ever before. And so far as because, so our parents come to us to understand how to use these digital tools. And these digital tools are predominantly shaping a lot of popular culture and public discourse. We have an outsized voice in a lot of conversations that historically young people have been disenfranchised and, and not included in. And furthermore, because of the great resignation and the economies that existed during our lifetime, oftentimes employers were more grateful to have jobs, the employees than employees were to have those same jobs. Like the very structures of how young people typically were like learning from your parents, grateful to have a job, quiet and excluded were ruptured in our lifetime because our parents depended on, on us to teach them the digital universe and we depended on them to teach us certain skills. And our employers needed us oftentimes more than we needed them. And we had these technological tools that allowed us to see models of what it looks like to be heard at a younger age to not wait our turn. Because even if we were in a paradigm where people weren't particularly eager to hear from young voices, we could look on social media and see another young voice being really loud and really brazen and really outspoken and being lauded for it. And so we got a sense of inspiration because seeing is believing, right? And we got to see so many more of us in popular culture, on public stages, such that I think more of us are taking microphone and taking claiming it back and passing that microphone amongst our generation to say the conversation is is ours and needs to be ours. So I am going to play devil's advocate a little bit here. So you've, you've talked about the microphone, right? And there is an aspect that, or a critique here, that there is a lot of talking, but maybe not enough action. And if you look to those previous generations who, you know, were out on the streets, seeing it in my country moment, you're striking to make their point heard. The criticism of Gen Z, and again, this is very broad brushstrokes, would be that there's a lot of talking and there's the ability to, I could spend an hour talking to you about cancel culture and my issues with that, but that this isn't necessarily about actual action that is making a difference. So tell me about how the words do move into action. From a basic, just like quantitative standpoint, I don't think that's true, right? I don't think that it's true that young people today are taking less action than generations prior. Do I think that there is a lot of talk that sometimes is more, that is louder than our action is? Of course, unquestionably, right? Do I hope that we find more ways to take actionable action in our communities? Of course. However, I would certainly posit, and our research would tell me, that Gen Z is taking action. It might not always be in the ways that other generations perceive action, but the number of Gen Zers who are signing petitions, right, who are being a part of change-making organizations, right, within school clubs, right, within digital ecosystems like Discord and talking about these issues and making their opinions heard and also coming up with policy solutions and actively working on projects like mutual aid in their communities and actively putting time and energy and fuel into these movements, I think is tremendous and significant. I don't want to undermine that. Give me some very specific examples. So people you know or things that you're doing that are very much that here is action being taken and positive reaction as a consequence. Young people have set records in the recent midterm elections, right? Right. And more young people are voting and going out to the polls. The issues that we care about and how we're taking action. I mean, you are seeing young people signing petitions. You are seeing young people be more conscientious in our spending. You are seeing young people actively think through when we're going on vacation plans, what is the environmental impact of our vacation, as well as how much does it impact the indigenous communities, indigenous biodiversity of the place that I'm looking at, right? And so people are living more conscientious lifestyles as a result 
result of the activism and advocacy that our generation has really been at the forefront of following in the footsteps of so many organizers prior. But the number of Gen Zers who did show up to protest, who are showing up when their schools are doing walkouts around gun violence, right, in so many different ways, I think young people are getting involved, but it's not necessarily all one movement. I think historically in society, there were these moments whether it was South African apartheid or whether it was these moments where all young people were sort of clamoring around one issue, right? And I think that's how a lot of old generations might view it because there was this like real groundswell of like everyone's taking buses and going to this one thing and doing this one same action. Whereas I think today there are racial justice activists and climate justice activists and this attack against the queer community right now, right? And LGBTQ plus advocates and people are activating and organizing in so many distinct ways. But I do also want to challenge one thing that you said insofar as this idea of talk not being action, right? Insofar as what I believe to be true is so much of where we have gained ground on these issues, where young people have actually seen legislative, and I studied in college social media's impact on policymaking, and I've thought about this question a lot, right? To what extent does our talking get anywhere? It does get us somewhere insofar as politicians are reprioritizing what legislation they're introducing because of noise that they are hearing and pressure that they're hearing from constituents. But you're in a country where road versus way is being repealed effectively in many, many states. And things are from the outside looking in. And look, again, I'm not throwing you know stones through glass houses. It's not perfect here. But it feels like we're taking big steps backwards. There's no question. That isn't to say that our talk is getting us nowhere, right? Maxwell Frost is in Congress. That isn't to say that we aren't making gains. Like, it, it is not linear, right? We, there are, and I also don't want to posit that Gen Z is homogenous. There are Gen Zers advocating on all sides of these issues, but Gen Z is advocating and activating for certain. And it certainly is changing things in the sense that I believe that so much change happens through media representation, through this idea of seeing and believing. And so I think that by more of us talking, right, about climate, talking about these issues, regardless of what specific thing you're saying, more people being conscientious about these discourses means that when, as we and as our parents and et cetera, are making decisions, that's more top of mind, right? And so the prioritization and tone on a lot of conversations I think is actually impacting policy because of the voices of diverse young people that are making sure that we are heard. We're going to go into some reoccurring questions because it's a really nice way to get to know someone. So I'm going to go to those and then we can come back Let's and we it. can continue this very positive debate. So when and how do you prioritise yourself? Okay, wow. <laughs> As a, clearly a very busy individual. I have constructed a life for myself where... It's hard to answer the question because the line, the boundary between self and other is not so clear. I talk a lot about this notion of community first business and what it looks like to live with community values and to live in community. And I try to live that philosophy. And so I think of my company as a community. I view myself as, as part of other, if that makes sense. So it's a hard question to answer, but I think short answer would be, I watch a lot of TV. I love TV. I love my friends and I feel that I probably don't in like a goopy, like millennial way. Like, you know, you're not going to see me like face masking, you know, with a bath. Here's a trend we're talking about and predicting for 2027 is that self-care goes to other care because people do everything that you're talking about at the moment becomes more front of mind. And so it's a move from that selfish not notion of self-care and it definitely has its importance, but people getting more out of other care. So there you go. What was the last series you binge watched? 
Oh, I just finished Never Have I Ever on Netflix like yesterday. And it's an example of a show of seeing and believing in the sense that it's one of the first mainstream wildly successful shows with Daisy family as the protagonist and and was unthinkable to me as a kid growing up. And the fact that now all of my white counterparts and friends are consuming and binging this show with me and learning about my cultures and communities, I think is a testament to how far we've come, but also how far much further we have to go and that it took so long and that and it's still not perfectly representative and has a, there's a lot more of us to be seen on, on the big screen. Yeah. Okay. What will you eat if you're home alone and no one is watching? It's a horrible answer. I eat all my meals out. You are managing to make yourself sound perfect, even with your bad habits. Not that it's a bad habit, but you're- I'm a marketer, what can I say? (laughs) I mean, my clients don't pay me to do PR and marketing for nothing, right? I have to know how to spin. Here is one, I want something really honest that you're not gonna be able to spin anyway. What is your bad habit? I think I talk too much and don't listen enough. Okay. I think that I have been so validated and so platformed at such a young age that I think I have in many ways atrophied my muscle of listening for the sole purpose of learning rather than reacting and responding. Okay, well, you have acknowledged that. That is the first step (laughs) to improvement. Right, let's go back to Gen Z. What do you think is going to happen with your generation 10 years from now? Look, do I think that politics, that philosophy has changed as you age, as you have to grapple with new realities and new circumstances? Unquestionably. Do I think that a lot of our deep-seated values around intersection, around intersectionality, around plurality, around integrity will shift dramatically? No, right? Because I think that we are shaped by the unique geopolitical events of our lifetime, and that has enveloped us into a deep sense of distrust of system, of state, of society, such that I think many of us are really amidst a moment of reimagination. What I think will happen in the next 10 years is I think, I'm particularly speaking on behalf of, at this moment, like, my peers that are like very proximate to my age as opposed to like a 15 year age gap of like Gen Zers. But I'm 24, right? I graduated from college two years ago. And I think a lot of kids my age, and we're not really kids anymore, a lot of adults my age, I should say, I think the pandemic was this powerful moment for a lot of people that was negative for a lot of people, but also was a powerful moment of reflection for a lot of people. And I think that historically society has told us this is the way that the world exists. This is the way that it is. And the pandemic showed us that a radically different world was possible if the political will exists for it to be so. And so I think a lot of us started to really reflect on, okay, then what do we want our world to look like? If the rules that we were taught do not actually confine us, if the lines in the coloring book were actually all a lie, what do we want the page to look like? And I think many of us on the other side of that now, still figuring it out, still piecing together and puzzling together what our ideal picture looks like. And so I think the next 10 years for us, I think, really looks like sitting in that, sitting in, okay, now we have the page. We've convinced ourselves that better is possible. We've convinced ourselves that different is possible. To what extent can we make it so? And to what extent are we living a life that is consistent with the values, with the vision that we have for ourselves and our communities? And I imagine we will encounter different constraints, right? than the ones that defined our youth as we deal with economies and finances and politics that shape our next 10 years. But I think you being like me, right, 22 and graduating into a pandemic and into an entirely different world that just dealt with such a reckoning of justice changes a lot about how you see yourself, how you still see career and graduating into a not a particularly strong economy. It's defined by a gig economy and by so much change and 
so much challenging of conventional norms. I think that the next 10 years will continue to see more of us live non-traditional lifestyles in ways that are sustainable for us. But what exactly that looks like, I don't know. But I'm eager to find out because I think that the great resignation, I think that this moment of questioning, of reckoning, can only lead to better outcomes. And I think that hopefully we'll see the fruits of that in the next decade. But are we setting up not just your generation, other generations up with false expectations of what's possible? Because society still needs people to stack shelves, deliver food, clean you know, the, the the functionality of people's existence, it requires, you know, nurses and people in care homes, you know, not glamorous jobs. Now, they may well know why, but they're not necessarily high paying jobs. How do you reconcile that? You know, we've got rising levels of anxiety and the expectation of what the world is there to deliver and what the world deliver it sometimes falls very short from what social media promises. I think that's a really astute and fair point. And and it's one that I agree with in the sense that I think that one of the indictments that I have of my own industry as a marketer and advertiser, right, in the advertising space, in the marketing space, is that we've gaslit young people into believing that a perfect life is possible, that you can love your job and love your spouse and love your home and love your body and love everything. If you just buy the right products, if you do the right things, if you have the right philosophies, if you read the right books, it is possible to be transcendent, to be gleeful, to be joyful, to live with purpose in every moment And I don't think that's true, right? I don't think that perfection is ever possible, right? And I think that it is part of the reason why our mental health crisis is as intense as it is, is that we've set people up for psychological failure in the sense that we've primed young people to believe that their lives will be perfect such that when anything that is goes imperfectly, we spiral. I'm a reflection of this, right? If I was looking at my life from the outside and I'd be like, he should be so happy. He's slaying, right? That's not how I feel all the time. I'm often my friends will tell you not the happiest, right? And that's because I think that like, I judge myself so harshly. When I got my first B, I cried for three days, right? Like, I thought that I could do it all, right? I thought that it could all be perfect. And when I have failed or not gotten perfect marks in any one vertical, I feel like I'm nothing. And I increasingly what I talk when I talk when I give talks to young people, what I'm trying to advocate for and trying to like give myself my younger self advice about, and what I'm still trying to learn is, This mindset that we're not going to be everything, we're not going to be nothing, we're just something that has to be good enough. And so I hear you and I hear your point. However, in regards to work specifically, I think that my response to people, those jobs would be more well-paying if we need them so much, right? Like, I think that supply and demand is real. And we as a company, we as a society and communities need to pay those that we need more, right? And we attribute salary to where we attribute this value in society to. And I think that our sociological and societal understanding of where value sits right now is really off. Those teachers should are, are so essential in society to be paid significantly more, right? But I also think that it's, again, not the case that young people or people, I don't think, want to work. It's just, okay, what are, what are the conditions? What is the pay? What is the why? And is it a forever thing or is it a temporary thing, right? And I think those are the questions when people are asking. I don't think it's the case that, like, People aren't willing to do the sh- like the unfun parts of your job, but maybe it's not the only part of your job. Or maybe you're compensated extra well for those unfun-, unfun parts or whatever it might be. I have to give this advice to people in my own organization and actually wider when I talk about, you know, getting ahead and those kind of things. There is in every job, there's things that you don't want to do. Yeah, my job, majority of my job is things I don't want to do. Let me tell you. <laughs> well, I'll be honest. 
I was, you know, at some conference and some CEO was on stage and a big company and they were talking about the real struggles they've had and anxieties and stresses that the job has ensued. And this person at my table was like, I don't know how they dealt with all of that. And I was like, what do you mean on how they dealt with all of that? They got, they got paid $30 million a year to deal with all of that. I think that I am in a position where, yeah, I don't like a lot of my job, but I feel valued and compensated and holistically inspired enough by my role that it is worth the parts of my job that I do not like. And so I think like that's what we have to ask ourselves as employers is, are we creating packages and infrastructure such that it is it, people should feel that it is worth cleaning the toilets? Right. Like it, it, it is worth because you are a part of something because there's something that you are getting back that means that it was worth whatever task you had to do. And that's how I think about my own job. And I try to share, extend that same humanity to every person should feel valued and feel that it was worth it in some way, shape or form, because it is certainly not the case that we can ever all have jobs that perfectly align with everything that we want to do all of the time. But I can answer why. And I can live with my why. And I should want the same for any person that works for me. Okay, I'm going to end with a question which you've sort of already answered, but I'm going to end there anyway. As you look towards the future, are you more anxious or hopeful? You really like you definitely are a journalist, like for sure. <laughs> Both. It's interesting. I um, interviewed someone else actually this week for the same podcast. And she's a little bit older than you, but not much. And she said exactly the same. She can't fall on either side. But if I'm being honest, like I'm almost more anxious about being hopeful. The idea of being optimistic is scary because I don't want to get my hopes up. And like the, the Harvard Institute of Politics, which is a biannual youth poll, and they found that young people are more fearful about the future than hopeful, right? Like the statistics tell us that broadly young people are more fearful about the future than hopeful. And so like from a Gen Z answer, that would be the answer, right? My answer, I am deeply, deeply anxious about tomorrow. I am deeply concerned about tomorrow. But on the other hand, I am inspired every day by the diverse young people on my team. And I am inspired. Like you talk about Jen Alpha, like my nine-year-old sister is growing up in a world where there are people whose names are as hard to pronounce as her own on television that she can look up to, right? And I am inspired that my little nine-year-old sister can talk to you about climate and racial justice in ways that I could not, right? And I'm inspired the fact that she cares and her whole little body, she cares, and she is thinking and she is trying and it is impossible to look at her. It is impossible to look at my team and not feel, damn, when these people are in charge, things have to look better than they do today. Right. And so from that sentiment, of course, I am hopeful because I see my peers and I was at dinner with my friend last night. I was supposed to last for an hour. I was there until like 11 p.m. at night talking about how we can reconfigure economic systems. And she's, you know, an incredibly powerful and accomplished, you know, entrepreneur and, and businesswoman as well, but who comes from a social impact background. And when I'm around these people and invested in these discourses, it's impossible to not believe that better is inevitable. Right. But on the flip side, you look at everything wrong in the world right now and the fact that there are people who are smarter, who are kinder, who are stronger than I, who've been fighting for decades and generations, who I am following in the footsteps of, and, and you see that we're still not even close to where we could be had we listened to those folks. Or we've moved backwards. That's the bit which scares me. Right. And, and it's hard to not feel incredibly disillusioned and disenfranchised and, and disempowered. And so I am all of the above. I hope each day that I can wake up and shift the needle a little bit. 
And it's not enough. I know it's not enough. And, 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 it, and it may never be enough, right? But I'll be damned if I don't die trying. And I think that's where I come from. Like, I, I am anxious. I am so anxious. But I am so hopeful. I'm, and I mean this like so sincerely. Like, all I hope is that my obituary reads he tried his best. And I am hopeful that my anxiety led to some action that made it better for one person. And if I did that, hopefully that's enough. That is a beautiful ending. Thank you so much. It's been a really interesting conversation. I think this went down a really, really good path and you had some really fascinating insights. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I'm always, and, and look, I meant what I said truthfully, like we exist to empower diverse young people, whether it's my voice or connecting you to others. If you're ever looking to talk to diverse young people, we exist to platform voices and we believe that these voices should be heard. And I'm just one voice in a collective of many, 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 many more. And so to whatever extent I can be a conduit to be part of these conversations or to amplify others in them, I'm, I'm always here to do that. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ziad. You were definitely a voice that I enjoyed having on the podcast. You can read more about Ziad Ahmed and how to get in touch with him on ziadahmed.me. I hope that you also enjoyed our conversation. A new episode will be out on the 4th of August. And in the meantime, take a listen to our other podcast, Create Tomorrow. Please spread the word about the podcast and do leave us a review. I'm Carla Basashi and I'll see you next time. 